0: Hey, I'm Brian Hyatt, and this is Rolling Stone, Music Now. We have a whole lot going on in this episode, three segments. First of all, I'm going to talk with Rob Sheffield about the life and music of Coolio, who died this week at the age of 59. And then Jeffy Haza will join me to talk about the absolutely inescapable song, Munch, Feeling You. We're going to hear a little bit of his interview with the rapper behind that song, Ice Spice. And finally, Stephen Hyden will join me for an in-depth conversation about his new book, Long Road. Pearl Jam and the soundtrack of a generation but first here's me and Rob talking about Coolio Rob we lost Coolio this week too many rappers of that generation are dying young it's awful
1: 59 I know it's terrible
0: but it, it seemed like it was worth celebrating Coolio's life and music. There was a moment when, with Gangsta's Paradise where you could not escape Coolio. He was an enormous star.
2: As I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I take a look at my life and realize Because I've been
0: That was an enormous song, but it wasn't his only hit, and he was more than Gangsta's Paradise. So maybe sum up what he meant for you. He was someone
1: who saw himself as an entertainer crossing boundaries going between worlds. He had a lot of gangster rap songs on one hand, on the other hand, he was someone who could appear on Sabrina the Teenage Witch.
2: Hey, what's going on? Coolio. Yeah. Cool. We need some information. Oh, well, as you can see, that's right up my alley.
1: He was someone who could such a memorable presence in Clueless just because his song Rollin' with My Homies is Brittany Murphy's theme song in that movie.
3: They're playing our song, the one that Elton and I danced to. Rolling with Kobe. The- oh, hi! Oh, don't cry. I'm sorry. <laughs> okay. Oh my God!
1: The idea that Coolio very much wanted to be a figure in all these different corners of the music world was very out of step with any kind of music star in the early 90s when things were really sort of the boundaries in terms of genres were a, a little more strict so that you had a, a rapper from the west coast g-funk kind of scene who wanted to also be you know appearing on sabrina the teenage witch which was a really bold big tent way of looking at pop music at that time
0: our old colleague gavin edwards posted something he wrote in Details magazine in a profile of Coolio from the nineties. Coolio was obsessed with M. McCaffrey, like dragon fantasy novels. And I, I tied that into the whole fantastic voyage escapism theme in the video and the song. I mean, he was he was not into being confined uh, in anything in genre or even this plane of existence, clearly. He really wanted to be able to escape any boundaries. I think I, I would put that all together, maybe. Come on,
2: y'all, let's take a ride. Don't you say a word, just get inside. It's time to take your wh- on another kind of trip.
1: Absolutely. It's weird to think of it, but Gangsta's Paradise was a much more safe and conformist move in the 90s than Fantastic Voyage. Gangsta's Paradise was more what people expected and fantastic voyage was a song that was so strange when you heard it just that it it mixed up disco and hip-hop but in a very specific midwest sort of disco and la sort of hip-hop at at a time when they were sort of philosophically sort of like distant and so just to hear something like fantastic voyage with its slide slide slippity slide was extremely strange it was a song that was almost perfectly designed for roller skating rinks and the idea that he was someone who's just very upfront about wanting to be you know the rest west coast rapper who could translate to that kind of mood i mean the the way that he reached for different moods in his songwriting was really uh really ambitious and definitely stood out at the time
0: he came from the underground he was he was in wc in the mad circle and and a damn thing
1: changed great
0: record
2: yeah and thing changed, suck how could you crazy, sell out. And, and, and,
0: and his debut solo album, which had Fantastic Voyage on it, is It Takes a Thief. And that album pretty much works from start to finish. That's a great album.
1: Yeah, that's a great album. For him, as he said when I met him backstage in 2017 for the I Love the 90s tour. He said, you know, that was the album that made the hood like me. And and it was funny that the songs like Gangsta's Paradise, that was the one that the pop audience got on board with. It had a very parodiable video with Michelle Pfeiffer in the video for Gangsta's Paradise, which made it a very super parody friendly sort of song. But, it, you know, Fantastic Voyage was such a rule breaking, groundbreaking, pathfinding kind of hit.
0: I think that's also what gave uh, Michelle Pfeiffer her sort of uh, hip-hop cred in general. It's why she appears in Eminem lyrics. It's why she's in uh, the Bruno Mars song. I think, I'm think i not sure if Michelle Pfeiffer would have made it to the MCU without <laughs> Coolio, is what I'm saying somehow. <laughs> it just gave her relevance. Coolio also hilariously said that he wasn't sure she'd ever met a black person before that video, which I'm sure is not true, Michelle, but it was funny. Her Earliest
1: hip-hop connection, I guess, being in Scarface.
0: True. Also, you know what? Okay, fine. Michelle Pfeiffer is an OG just for Scarface, (laughs) obviously. That would be enough. It's really
1: a beautiful thing that Coolio got over his beef with Weird Al eventually uh, for replacing Michelle Pfeiffer with Florence Henderson (laughs) in the really, really, really funny video during what was in some ways really a dry patch for Weird Al. He really knocked it out of the park with Amish Paradise. That was really kind of a comeback for Weird
3: Al
0: yes it's I mean it's weird because what gangsta's paradise did to Stevie Wonder's pastime paradise Weird Al then in turn did a little bit to Gangsta's Paradise, so it's just <laughs> this 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 sort of erasure of the previous song in one's mind, and it's weird because Pastime Paradise is a great great Stevie Wonder song from one of his one of his very best albums, Songs in the Key of Life, if not his best album, but it never was a single, so way more people heard <laughs> Gangsta's Paradise. I always felt bad that as a kid I heard Gangsta's Paradise first, but you know like a lot of people did unless you were unless you would already knew the whole album it it just wasn't a single it wasn't as it's a great stevie wonder song but it wasn't a super famous one it, so
1: overshadowed on the record by some of his most famous songs
0: exactly like sir dude Yeah, pretty good one.
1: So it's easy to overlook that song because it's not one of the five most or <laughs> even probably maybe even I mean, it's, it's not one of the famous songs on that album. Coolio said that when he was a kid, he was growing up that that was Songs of the Cave of Life was one of the first albums he ever owned. But he had never even noticed Pastime Paradise until he heard his producer playing it in the studio. And he just sat down and wrote Gangsta's Paradise on the spot. He was so moved by the music and by the uh, by by the tone.
0: He's, he later admitted to us that that was his version, but I guess what he actually heard was this track that the gospel singer LV, who sings the hook, the Gangsta's Paradise hook, had already made that chorus and he wrote to that chorus. And then it's amazing because I guess uh, Rolling Stone ran a great oral history of this song. And I guess the movie Bad Boys was in a bidding war, basically, with dangerous minds for the song. It was the 90s, things were very different. And so Dangerous Minds, one, offered more money. So that's how it ended up in this kind of terrible movie and lived beyond that. I mean, Coolio just, like you said, he just was always around. He is connected to BTS because they had a reality show before they were famous in the U.S. called Hustle Life. (laughs) And they traveled to L.A. and were taught about hip hop. And the most famous person on that show was Coolio. And I How watched that. that and Coolio took this very seriously and he was tough and fair and uh, and didactic in the best way. And he quizzed them about the history of hip hop and he recognized their talent and worked with them. So all over the BTS Reddit and the other places where ARMY gathered, they're all paying tribute to Coolio as well. And I thought that was uh, kind of moving, you know.
1: I love that. He, g- he gave them their hip hop lessons. That's a really sort of beautiful role to play in the bulletproof Boy Scouts journey to the top of the American pop culture scene.
0: And what do you make of Coolio's afterlife? I, it's the weird thing about a hit as big as Gangsta's Paradise is you sort of, don't come back from that, in a way. It's a wonderful and a terrible thing to happen to you. He said it was great because even though Stevie Wonder apparently took almost all the publishing, that was part of the deal of Stevie Wonder agreeing to the release of the song. Part of it was also changing the lyrics a little bit. But Stevie Wonder took like 95% of the publishing. So he didn't make a lot of publishing off of it. But Coolio said it allowed him to tour the world. But he also, you know, he never surpassed the hit. He kind of, you know, he became this reality show figure. You talked to him. How do you think he dealt with the sort of aftermath of all that? He
1: he absolutely he did not have that sort of bitter feeling that you get. Certainly, compared to other artists who are involved in something like the I Love the '90s tour, he was uh, an old school figure who is really curious and trying to understand the new school, and that really kind of sums him up because he was. An artist who always saw beyond stylistic boundaries. Something really beautiful about when he did with Stevie Wonder had joined him on stage to do Gangsta's Paradise. And something I really loved was that Coolio and LV were singing the Pastime Paradise Chorus. And then Stevie Wonder was singing the Gangsta's Paradise Chorus. And it was like they were both making an effort to to do the other one's song. And to me, that sort of cultural outreach that kind of sums up Coolio. He Definitely thought big in terms of his cultural outreach and his duet with Kenny Rogers. I'm sorry, that is absolute classic. The Hustle, where, you know, like a lot of hip hoppers, fascinated with the Kenny Rogers song, The Gambler. And, you know, Coolio was like, why imitate? You know, why, why just quote? Why don't I just go to the source? And they did this fantastic video together.
2: So watch them freeze, and can affect your game with the
0: he said that he reached out to Bjork once to do a song. He thought big and he and you know and he was part he and his hits were part of hip hop becoming and subsuming pop culture. There's no doubt about it. I mean, let's give him some credit there.
1: It's funny that of course Gangsta's Paradise is the song that he's most famous for and that's cool, but it's funny that Gangsta's Paradise is dated in a way that Fantastic Voyage I agree. isn't. That Fantastic Voyage, that was a song that very much took on the hip-hop mainstream and took on the radio mainstream because pop rock rap they were all very self-consciously dour in 1994 nobody wanted to be caught trying to make a pop record that was really uncool and embarrassing and the coolio very much wanted to make you know a record that had that sort of thugged out west coast vibe but also would be a roller skating party song that was so radical so ambitious It was genuinely shocking to hear that song on the radio that summer. And it was all over the radio that summer because everybody said, "Okay, Coolio, you were willing to do this. You were right. We will admit that you're right after you got away with it. And that's a tribute to his adventurous
0: spirit. And we've all been slippity sliding ever since. Slippity slide. Rob, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you so much, man. And now here's Jeffy Hazza to talk with me about Munch, Feeling You.
3: You thought I was feeling you? No. I I
0: wanted to talk about the most inescapable song of the moment, which is called Munch. It's just one of those songs, it is everywhere. If you're in New York, you just have to walk down the street and you'll hear it out of a car, or you just have to open up TikTok if you're anywhere and you'll hear it. You spoke to the artist behind this song, Ice Spice, and we're going to play a little bit of that interview but tell me about how this song became so ubiquitous if you can
2: i think i first became aware of it probably a few weeks after the video initially dropped she put out the video for munch just a little over a month ago so we're talking about maybe late august and it took over TikTok pretty much instantly it took no time at all for someone to post a clip of it and then you know, TikTok is already very big, big on New York drill music. You've already noticed that New York drill kind of runs the platform. Whether it's like suburban kids or like college track kids or literally kids in the Bronx, like it's drill music, all the way down. And this was kind of just another moment of like, oh, here's like a new drill track that people are kind of talking about. And I think once people saw the video, and she kind of is like doing a very like sexual motions, and you know, she's very confident in her body in a, in the sense that like, you know, she's giving Megan The Stallion. Kim, like, very early 90s era, like, girl rap, confident, defiant, you know, she opens with You Thought I Was Feeling You, and we talked about it a little bit in the interview in that I feel like the first wave of the song's kind of growth was a lot of the kind of, like, male OG drill guys, if you will, hating on the song and being like, oh, who's this girl trying to do drill rap, blah, 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 and it kind of switched In a few days where enough people had heard it and then the song was in enough people's heads for long enough that it went from making memes hating on the song to making memes about how you can't stop listening to the song. And it's kind of just been like up from there. I think the other thing, too, is like, you know, one thing she mentioned in the interview is like, you know, drill has such a connotation to it. Like people immediately associate it to violence, immediately associate it to a lot of the songs that are out that are literally about killing people. The way she kind of approaches that beat and the way she approaches the cadence where she is rapping, you know, rapping, rapping, but she's also giving a lot more space to the production in a way that I think makes the song really stick with you because the beat is really infectious. The beat's great, uh, produced by someone she met in college. And it's because of kind of that slow like almost seductive way of, of rapping where it's like instead of it just being like super hard gyration it's like this rhythmic melodic dancing to it and she almost lets you like you can dance to it halftime which i think is really cool where a lot of drill is super fast you know 130
3: 140 bpm try to me i'm down with you and can't for a bitch i be got house for him and his Had to walk up off could get us a story. The
2: you can she kind of wraps over it in halftime which allows it to be a lot more open to different audiences i think
0: right and it's also like as you're hinting subject matter wise it has a version of doomy drill production which which goes all the way back to chief Keef. like had that that really doomy ominous ship
2: these bitches love salsa. oh and i know man fucking with them all. Old-
0: She's rapping all this hilarious, sort of lighthearted shit over it. And and so I think that's the other thing that, that sort of makes it stand out.
2: Yeah, and she said she came up with the song Super fast, And like, <laughs> you know, that's kind of, you know, the, the stuff of rap legend, right? Where it's like the perfect bar comes to you just randomly. Um, and so, yeah, it subverts a lot of what I think people assume about drill music. While at the same time highlighting what I think a lot of people haven't been paying enough attention to about drill music. Which is, first and foremost, this is music to dance to.
0: And let's hear a little bit of her talking about the making of this song.
3: I was just recording in my room, and I was just like, oh, let me make a song, like, fast, as fuck, like, as fast as possible. And when I just like, kind of came up with it. Like, I was just talking about, like, um, a man, like, just being desperate. And I was just like, how can I describe a desperate man that wants to eat it all the time? And I was just like, munch, he's a munch try to be just, like, as clear as possible. But, yeah, I do feel like I'm bringing, like, a music as I feel like it's, it's like, um, like my music's not as, uh, it's just fun, you know? Mm. There's always been haters. Like, my whole career, I've been getting, like, plenty of hate. But I feel like that's what made me grow up. Once he's, like, bringing out the fun in drill, I feel like... Because it was like a little serious before, a little violent sometimes, which is cool. I'd be bumping that that raw shit all
0: day. But yeah, to challenge you, drill itself, literally movement, the way it moved around geographically, starting in Chicago, going to the UK, coming to New York. Maybe you can kind of give us a, a pocket history of all that, and then particularly a New York drill and some of the what's going on with that currently. I know that our writer, Andre Guy, wrote a great piece about the sort of current wave of New York drill. So I know it's hard to sum up, but maybe give us a pocket history of all that.
2: Yeah, totally. I mean, I think you kind of touched on it before with, you know, the Chief Keefs and the Little Dirks of the Chicago movement. This is must be going back into the early 2010s, uh, you know, into the 2020s. and You know, obviously, it's music from the streets. It's music of people kind of speaking to their realities. But I think what people miss is, like, the production is where the sound comes from. I I think people kind of conflated... Oh, Chief Keef is rapping about, you know, killing people and, and hurting people. And Lil Dirk is rapping about murder and gang violence. Wings, swinging, no flag, nigga. We do need no pass, Got 40 with a dirty clip and laser on and play tag with us. Everybody want talk breaks them fest. You know, that, that must be what Drill is about. And I think what it actually is, is like it's a sound that permeated through different communities that share similarities. So when Drill made it, makes its way to the UK, you know, UK violence and US violence look very different for one they have much you know fewer guns there and it's just a different dynamic of, of poverty and, and race and different things and so when UK drill was really getting big in like the 2013-2015s era you know the government there kind of associated with a, a spree of knife crime so now it was like oh these guys have big knives and are slashing each other and it's because of the drill music and I think you know, it's like the population was that the population, whether or not they had whatever music they were listening to. And it's like they connected via the production. And I think that's where people have for, like missed the mark. You go to the UK and you've got producers in the UK making drill. drills under fire in, in the UK for the same reasons they've got, you know, the conservative government cracking down on drill artists and saying this is why our teens are violent, etc. At the same time, you have producers in the UK working with Pop Smoke from New York who's slowly starting to come up in the scene over here, making music that really isn't all that violent. I mean, Pop Smoke was almost making pop music. It's like, I'm in Dior shopping. Like, she liked the way that I move. She like the way that I rock. She liked the way that I woo. And she let it clap for a nigga. She let it clap for a nigga. Yeah. It was music about flexing, which is a very New York thing, right? It's It wasn't necessarily, I'm gonna kill my op, I'm gonna kill this guy. And so, you know, when Pop Smoke came around, Here's a sound that already was infectious in chicago infectious in the uk there are people in ghana you know listening to it and now it's in new york it's in you know the mecca of entertainment you've got a very you know charismatic face of it all with pop smoke and suddenly you know and the, the first song that you know really blows him up is welcome to the party baby welcome to the party uh, i'm off the maya's the that's why i'm over retarded that's why i'm over retarded Baby, welcome to the body huh? right. It's like now we get to see drill as dance music. We get to see drill as this like energetic, almost euphoric style. Obviously, you know we know pop, Sm- pop smoke was tragically killed. but I think you know what he brought to drill and the way that he brought it into the mainstream is kind of how we got to the level we're at now where it's inescapable. Um, so that for that, you know, the abridged history because i I don't know that it's actually very easy to pin down any specific route. For it, especially when you listen to, you know, the New York drill artists now don't necessarily sound all that similar to some of the early Chicago stuff.
0: Yeah. And tell me about the larger current wave of New York drill.
2: So now I think what we're seeing is a lot of artists working with something that, you know, it's been dubbed sample drill. It's almost the TikTok generation where they find a cheeky song from the 2000s and then put a drill beat over it. So when Stranger Things was on, you know, the Kate Bush song was blowing up. And almost immediately after that song blows up on TikTok, there's a drill remix that goes crazy. And I think it's a way for this younger generation who's kind of engaging with culture and pop culture, especially way differently and way faster than I think any generation prior where they can really pull from different reference points quickly. Uh, You know, drill is like this perfect canvas for them to kind of mash everything together where it's like oh i just heard about the goo goo dolls let's make a goo goo dolls drill remix like it's like the perfect palette for you know the, the way that i think a lot of people discover music and in, in culture nowadays
0: i guess with ice spice herself it's unclear you know this could be like a one-hit wonder situation or it could be that she's like the cardi b of drill we'll see i know that you already like you like another song by her a previous single
2: Right, I actually think the first song she put out before Munch was really cool. Her, She has a song that she put out last November called No Clarity.
3: You did me dirt, Why? cause what did I do? Like, I fucked like on your bro. Like, I cannot choose no love in a Bitch, I am the one.
2: So how- um, and it rides a super crazy, like, pop-punk sample. And she actually talks to me in the interview about, you know, when she was a kid, she was super emo and was, like, listening to Skrillex and EDM, which was super hot at the time. Um... But I think I, I think she has more than just munch because there's a certain confidence to her delivery. I think, you know, as you described, like the Cardi B of drill is actually kind of fitting. I think Cardi B her success is like, you know, on one hand, she is A great at rapping and also B like continues to get better at rapping. But then on top of all of that, Cardi B has always been a very charismatic, very funny, very like interesting person to just watch. Like she'll tweet about the freaking Fed meeting and it's funny and interesting. And I think Ice Spice kind of has a lot of those same characteristics. I mean, you know, the video dropped officially, I think, August 10th. That's what YouTube says. So still right in the pocket of summer, in my opinion. And, you know, we needed it. We we genuinely needed Munch in the culture this year. It's a fun song. It's kind of reminding people that things can still be fun.
0: And As she discussed, like... Drake actually flew her out to Toronto to hang. Like Drake, no one is no one is quicker on the draw in many ways. <laughs> well, that story that story is interesting
2: too because, like, you know, and it also says something to her uh, to to her like professionalism because. So Drake slides in her DMs like, "Oh, I really like this track, whatever," and she asks him before she posts the screenshot of you know that interaction, and. You know, the reason why I guess Drake invited her out to Toronto was because she asked and he was grateful for that. But, you know, I think she, she moves in a way that it it's only natural that Drake would take notice.
0: And just finally, I think it's interesting timing wise. I mean, it, New York trill has had an interesting year as far as intersections with the authority. I think it was just earlier this year that the mayor of New York basically cited it as as, you know, propagating violence. And then kind of took it back, met with some uh, with some drill rappers, but
2: there was a whole Law and Order just, episode about it too.
0: <laughs> I missed that. There you go. And uh, and then at, at Rolling Loud, uh, there were three or more rappers cut from the show at the request of the New York Police Department. Right. So it, it's this weird thing here. You have this genre producing this like totally fun song of the summer, and on the other hand, being perceived as a as some kind of actual danger.
2: Yeah, I mean it's it's something that's followed the genre from day one, right. which is kind of it it's part of its allure in a lot of ways, right? Because I think some people also are attracted to the fact that this music is violent and people talk about real stuff on it. And I think what drill really presents, especially for authorities, is a complicated it's it's more complicated than they would like these populations to be. They want to be able to say, like, you're in the Bronx, you're a rapper, you're violent. But in fact, these guys are in the Bronx, they're rappers, they have enemies or whatever, but they also, as Ice Spice puts it, have a zesty side. And I think when <laughs> the, when you got these guys shaking their hips all of a sudden, it's harder to, to typecast it. And I think that's what makes it so interesting.
0: Well, Jeff, thanks for joining me. We'll have you on again soon.
2: Thank you.
0: And now here's something totally different, which is my conversation with Stephen Hayden about his new book on Pearl Jam. so So Stephen, I really enjoyed your new book, Long Road, Pearl Jam and the Soundtrack of a Generation. And you make a great point at the beginning that which I'll amplify probably as I describe, which is that Pearl Jam are the perfect band for Gen X because like Gen X, they've sort of been erased and forgotten (laughs) in
4: some ways. You know, and I I hadn't really put that together and it's so true. In the 90s, if you were an indie rock site, you would have been against Pearl Jam because they were like the epitome of like a mainstream rock band that was everywhere, almost looking at indie rock bands as being the antithesis of that. Whereas now, uh, you know, you might look at a band like Pearl Jam as being this old-fashioned white guy rock band that doesn't seem to have much relevance to, you know, the current music world, you know, and there is a degree of truth to that, to be honest, but I just think they have such an interesting career, and especially if you're talking about the 90s, if you don't talk about Pearl Jam, you're leaving out a big part of the story, you know, whether you like them or not, I mean, they are a significant part of music at that time, especially in the first half of the 90s.
0: I mean, as far as younger listeners, definitely Yellow better has in some weird way connected. That's the song I see on TikTok all the time.
3: <laughs>
0: Something about the mystery of the lyrics makes it
4: a very sort of viral thing. That's an interesting thing. I, I wasn't aware of that.
0: I think that the young people who are into Pearl Jam are essentially the same ones who are classic rock kids in general. And for them, and which continues to exist, there are teens and 20-somethings who get into quote-unquote classic rock. It's just that that definition now very much includes Pearl Jam. They're really grandfathered into the classic rock canon at this point, and to a certain extent were always destined to be for all the protestations of the punk influences, which definitely were very real, but in the end, as you point out, like they're they were way more tied to the classic rock canon than, you know, corn and limp biscuit, for sure.
4: Yeah, and I think that classic rock connection, it's a double edged sword with Pearl Jam, because, like you say, it was there from the beginning and just from like a visual perspective, they looked like a band from the '70s, more so than a band like Nirvana, to pick an obvious point of comparison. Even though Nirvana had a lot of the same influences, there was just something about them that seemed more opposed to that lineage, at least in like a philosophical kind of way. Whereas Pearl Jam, I mean, they they look like, you know, like Eddie Vedder. There was something about him that yeah, you can liken him to like a Roger Daltrey or you know, like a Paul Rogers from Bad Company. Like, he's not that different vocally or in terms of just how he looks. And, uh, you know, I think that, in a lot of ways, is, like, why they were so popular. You know, there was something about them that felt familiar at the time, but was also in tune with the philosophical changes that were going on in 90s rock. Like, you know, they weren't these sort of, like, macho, posturing rock gods of the 70s, but they could kind of give you the same red meat that those bands gave you. Like Nirvana didn't have
0: uh, Mike McCready's ripping guitar solos. Right. (laughs) Yeah,
4: exactly. Mike McCready, who, you know, yeah, and especially early on Mike McCready, he looked like Stevie Ray Vaughan you know in the early pearl jam videos and played uh, like him <laughs> yeah. it played like him too you know you mentioned yellow ledbetter i mean that's like a blues rock song oh. that is very indebted to jimi hendrix i mean I, that song is basically little wing with eddie vetter improvising lyrics over it you know and that's i think what's great about it someone else might feel differently um but yeah, I think that was a key to them being so popular. But it was also like the thing that people who didn't like Pearl Jam seized upon, you know, this idea, like, well, they're not really punk rock, they're corporate rock, you know, and the corporate rock thing is, I, I think, a sort of ignorant accusation that was thrown to them. I mean, I, I still hear people talk about Pearl Jam being this sort of corporate confection when you know stone gossard and jeff Amett had deep roots in seattle indie music you know that precede even kurt cobain you know they played in green river in the mid 80s like there's a quote from jeff Amett talking about you know how kurt cobain used to always take shots at pearl jam and he was like well you know if i wanted to be stupid about it i could say that green river helped pay for the first nirvana record but you know i'm not going to do that um so, yeah, I mean, I think that all kind of feeds into what, what people love about them and what critics took them to task for.
0: I mean, you know, I don't think, especially verses, which I never loved as a whole, um, I don't think that early Pearl Jam stuff has aged as well as Nirvana's stuff my opinion. I think right. that Nevermind communicates in a timeless way, communicated even across genres. There's people who like basically don't like any other rock music, like rappers for a long time, you know, always were like, Nirvana's great, Nevermind is great, even if they don't like rock per se. And no one's going to be like, I don't like rock, but I love Pearl Jam's 10. You
4: know? <laughs> <laughs> right, right. No, that's, that's true. And, and look, there's so many other factors too that go into people feeling that way and you know we don't need to go into it i think it's pretty obvious the circumstances of kurt cobain's life and death that made him into an icon that he is you know and again i don't want to get too locked into like a nirvana versus pearl jam binary here but you know it is easier in a way to be a band that ends in in your 20s than to be a band that goes into your 50s you know there's going to be periods in your career where you do not look young and beautiful. Anymore if you're the band that ages but yeah, to go back to your point about Pearl Jam's albums I mean, this is something I write about in the book like a big part of the book Is talking about Pearl Jam's life as a live band because I agree. I you know I there's a lot of Pearl Jam records. I like but if I were only listening to the albums I don't think I would care about them as much as I do. I think The fact that I've like gone into the bootlegs and this is true of like all of the people I think who really love the band hardcore fans, I think, value the live experience with this band at least as much as the records. And in that respect, I would compare them to a band like The Who and even Bruce Springsteen to a degree. I mean, Bruce has made amazing records, obviously. But, you know, Bruce Live is a different thing, and I think if he weren't so good live if it were just about the records i don't know if he'd have the reputation that he has either so i think that was something i was trying to bring to the fore a little bit more because i feel like outside of pearl jam fan circles that's not something that uh is appreciated maybe with this band and, but i do feel like that's an important part of their history and if you're going to talk about them you need to talk about the shows you know because i think that's where that music really comes alive you know more than the record i mean you mentioned nirvana i have a bit in my book about Stone Temple Pilots, which I think is an interesting comparison because they had the same producer in the 90s, Brennan O'Brien. And I think Pearl Jam's a better band than Stone Temple Pilots, but those STP records sound really good.
0: My take is that Pearl Jam is definitely a better band, but Stone Temple Pilots didn't have that fear of writing tight pop songs they weren't you know eddie as you kind of allude to him in the book eddie vedder told me that every time he wrote a catchy pop song he thought about bad things like for example the stalker he had so it was like pulling teeth to even get better man on the album as you write about so i think in part because of their their sort of shaggy instincts as musicians and in part because of their sort of this like visceral terror of pop songs as being associated with all this scary stuff. Sometimes, some like, STP just had tighter songs sometimes.
4: I would say that there's a dynamic quality to their records that Pearl Jam records don't uh, sometimes have. That a lot of those Pearl Jam records, they sound like a band going into the studio and jamming it out live, which is, again, an incredible thing to hear on stage, but, like, it doesn't always translate to powerful records. Whereas I think with STP, sometimes, like, those records were were formed into records that would sound good on the radio like interstate love song
3: is thing to do with all all do.
4: that is a powerful record you know is like better man a better song you know that's up to the you know person who decides that I think as a record, you know, those songs just worked so well on the radio and they were supposed to. And like Pearl Jam sort of, as you say, like they, on purpose, a lot of times didn't craft like songs that would explode out of the radio.
0: I think Better Man is probably a better song than just about anything Stone Temple Pilots ever did. However, there's only one Better Man. (laughs) There's not, they didn't write like 10 Better Mans. And I mean, there's other great, you know, there's uh, Given to Fly. Which is another great, radio-ready, soaring song, uh, written by Mike McCready, musically at least. It's so weird. Vitology, I think, is you know one of the Pearl Jam records from the 90s that's aged the best. And I had forgotten until your book that Stone hates that record, although that makes total sense, because it's when Ed sees control of the band.
4: I mean i think he did initially I, I i would imagine he's come around he did yeah but uh yeah i think that was a record where you know because stone gossard was really the musical architect of the early pearl jam records along with jeff Ament to a lesser degree but he was the one that was writing those radio-friendly songs on 10 even flow alive yeah. you know black which wasn't officially released as a single but radio played it anyway because it was such an obvious uh radio hit
3: mm-hmm.
4: and then eddie better takes it in this more eccentric direction like where honestly i think vitology is like a more extreme record than in utero is for instance i think that the weird like the weird parts of Vitology, and this is on some respects probably a deliberate thing but like they go even farther out than in utero in utero you listen to it now aside from a couple of the noisy songs on side two a lot of great pop songs on that record
3: what else should i feel
4: You know, there's no song like "Bugs" on *In Utero*, which you know Eddie Vedder would joke about that being the first single from the record. I got bugs.
3: I got bugs in my room. Bugs in my bed.
4: This song that just seems like deliberately annoying, you know, like a like a meta type song almost. Like, how interesting is it that this is on a record by? one of the most popular bands in the world.
0: It's impossible to convey, and although you do a very good job, and I think that's one of the, the real values, the, one of the things that makes your book really valuable is it's so difficult to convey all of the cultural circumstances that somebody like Pearl Jam was pushing up against in the 90s. You, if you were Pearl Jam, you had Kurt Cobain raining unfair criticism on them, mostly unfair um, which which Ed then just like the classic like bullied child bullies back, he then did the same to Stone Temple Pilots, unfortunately. Dismissing them, you know, I was on the San Diego scene and I never heard of him actually. I mean, whatever. And then you had, you know, you had this tremendous just general resentment from the indier side of alternative. I remember being on a college campus and seeing that movie Hype in an the actual theatrical screening of it. And when Ed came on the screen, the audience, who were all probably much cooler than me and much more indie in their sensibilities, like, very loudly laughed and jeered at the very sight of him. This was a little later in the 90s, and it's just because it's it's like he just couldn't win. The more tortured he acted about being mainstream famous the more everybody hated it that no one no one bought that even henry rollins as you say in the book would be like ed you have to chill the fuck out <laughs> he just could not win if he acted happy with it then the indie people would hate him but even when he acted tortured no one on um, like the sort of fugazi side of things was sympathetic to that they were just like you're being an asshole so he was just he all that you look back at some of his behavior and you look back just his general demeanor and it seems like you know it seems inexplicable like what was your problem but th- this was his problem all the stuff we're talking about and he was being stalked and it was it, and Kurt Cobain fucking killed himself the other guy who was held up on the little Mount Rushmore fucking killed himself but the intensity of it all is what's so hard to convey if you know if you know what I'm saying you did a good job yeah. of trying to get all this across
4: well and it's interesting because you know I was uh my 14th birthday was like a week and a half after 10 came out. And of course I didn't know 10 was out at the time. It took a while for 10 to uh, really hit. I mean, it was really like 1992, like by like early to mid 92 is when that album really started to blow up. But I was square in the demographic that was going to respond to that record. And I think, you know, one thing that was maybe, you know, It was an indie thing, but I also feel like it was a teen versus like young adult thing. Because there's something about 10 that I think is really pitched toward the teenage sensibility. And when you watch the video for Jeremy, for instance, just how, uh, you know, melodramatic Eddie Vedder is in that video. If I were five years older and saw that video, I would probably laugh at it. But I was 14 when that was on. So I was like, this is how I feel. Like, I was living a very melodramatic life, as everyone is at that age. And there's something really pure about that video, and I think just that record in general, that there's no ironic space, especially with Eddie Vedder, that he's putting between himself and what he's expressing. You know, he's not putting himself above the feelings being expressed. He's like, he is expressing that and he is actualizing it in the uh, songs and, and then in the videos at that time. And in the 90s, you know, again, like there was this, you know, it was an ironic period. You know, like indie rock was fairly ironic. You know, this is the age, like when pavement's coming out, there's this idea of like, it's not really cool to look like you're trying. Or that you care too much, or that you think that you can actually change the world with your music. I mean, it was a very eye rolly type type uh, attitude pervading uh, a lot of things. And uh, Pearl Jam just went up. You know, they 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 pushed against that, like in a similar way that like U two did, like ten years earlier. Like where U two was a very sort of non-ironic band. Of course, they became an ironic band, or they tried to in the nineties with the Zoo TV. I, I think that opened them up to mockery, but it's also the thing that endeared them to their audience and it's probably kept their audience with them, uh, at least that original audience, you know, over the years.
0: I wanted to bring it back to Jeremy for a second, which is, you make a great point about the Jeremy video, which I think I had subconsciously realized, but had never really pondered, which is the editing of the end. And of course, for those who don't remember, it's about you know, a bullied kid who in one way or another sort of seeks his revenge, but what happens in the video, what's supposed to be happening, is that Jeremy shoots himself in front of his class. Because of MTV's edits or the label's edits at MTV's behest or however, whatever it was, it looks like he's a school shooter. He was never supposed to be that. And it's a terrible, inadvertent and they were trying to protect people, you know, from the, the kids, from the imagery of suicide. And instead made it like a billion times worse and perhaps actively dangerous. And I think you made a, make a really good case that when you think about the band's avoidance of videos, that might be the real reason. Like, that's fucking horrendous.
4: Yeah, that was something that came up when I talked to Mark Pellington uh, in 2017. He's the director of the video and he's directed many famous music videos and he was talking about how like you said that his his theory is that the band stopped making videos not because of some animus towards mtv although you know that was certainly i'm sure part of it as well and the fear of overexposure i'm sure that comes into play but also because of how that video was edited and how the meaning was changed and when you watch the video, you can see the unedited video now on on YouTube. I don't think the edited version is even up, but when the video originally aired, yeah, there was a shot where it's pretty clear that he's taking his own life and MTV cut that out. And at the end of the video, you see him holding a gun and then you see all the students frozen in place and there's blood splattered all over them. And I remember watching that as a kid and not I think I didn't know for sure what happened if he if he took his own life or if he shoots the students i mean the thing about that song is that for the most part it's sung from the perspective of his classmates you know the people who are tormenting jeremy but in the first verse it's like this omniscient point of view and it's talking about essentially jeremy having this murder fantasy like where uh, i forget the exact line but it's something about like People laying below him, and while well, maroon blood flows, and with his arms raised in a v, and you know there's been stories written about school shooters over the years that one of the images that that recurs when school shooters take photos of themselves are them raising their arms in a v, which you know has been construed to be taken from that video, wholly unintentional, but it is a really bizarre side effect of their extreme fame at the time. And and I think it just speaks to, you know, the, the fear that happens when you become that successful, like, and which is you lose control of your art. You know, you lose control of the context of how your work is perceived and it can just have these consequences that you wouldn't ever have dreamed of, but also have nothing to do with you. Cause you know, it's not their fault that that happened. It's just what happened, because they were so big.
0: I mean, the, the other thing, and I, I've strived to get this across to people over the years who sort of weren't there, but, you know, there was that moment, um, you know, Pearl Jam was played so much on MTV and the radio that they were the pop music of the moment more than actual, you know, sort of what, we, what we'd think of as the dance pop of the moment. They were... Enormous, they were like there's this mentality. There's this thought now that you know something else must have been bigger. That the you know that 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 sort of um radio dance pop must have been the biggest thing. It's like, no, there was a moment when you would turn on Z100 being the the big pop station in New York, and what you would hear would be Pearl Jam, right? You know, it's very hard to convey this to people. It was for a, a what was really a pretty brief moment, like a year and a half two before everything sort of started to change again. But there was a moment when it truly was the pop music. And so therefore, like the kids who were into Pearl Jam and even like the college kids who were in Pearl Jam weren't like the cool kids who really cared about music. They were just like kids. (laughs) It was just everyone. And that was,
4: yeah. And it's not just Pearl Jam. It's bands that sounded like Pearl Jam. And that also became another problem for them. Uh, where Pearl Jam, in a sense, not deliberately, but there was a new genre invented, which was sound like Pearl Jam. And that lasted for a long time. That lasted even beyond Pearl Jam's commercial peak, as we can see with the rise of Creed and even like Nickelback and stuff like that. There is the germ of Pearl Jam 10 in a lot of that music, and then that ends up getting held against you, you know, where you influence stuff that uh is questionable in the eyes of many people. Um I mean, in radio had the same thing. I mean, they had a similar thing, like where by the end of the 90s, they're, like every British rock band had a uh a singer with a high voice that was very pretty over chiming guitars.
3: Look at the stars, look how they shine.
4: You know, it's like how do you deal with that? You know, do you have to totally change your sound then to uh not be associated with this? Uh, it just becomes, it just compounds the issue at that point.
0: Yeah, it's weird that you know, Stone Temple Pilots, as you go into in a lot of detail, took so much shit for the moment in which they sounded like Pearl Jam, which is really basically like one song, really. But right. <laughs> You know, there were a million things like Seven Mary Three and a million other things <laughs> that people completely forgot. That were just grotesquely like Pearl Jam, and it just, as you said, it continued on and on into this sort of butt rock of the of the late '90s and early 2000s. Of all that, all that horrible shit sounded like you know some. Version of Pearl Jam, and, and unfortunately, part of it's just like it's easier to have a be have a guy be like, I want a demon. like that's that's easier to <laughs> right. have a to have that vibe than to do. You know, it's amazing that there were so many Radioheads because that's hard, that's a harder vibe to capture. But there's a lot of Midwestern dudes who can. Blah, 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 blah. I mean, that's just like unfortunately became a thing. You well, know?
4: yeah, and you know, there's the Seattle record producer Jack and Dino and he coined a phrase called "yarling" <laughs> right to describe that kind of singing. Although he defended Eddie Vedder, he said, "I don't think Eddie Vedder Jarls except maybe on the first record." And there is definitely a move in Pearl Jam's music as the albums proceed, where the like the singing gets less uh, operatic and is more subtle, and it also corresponds with Pearl Jam being less commercial at the same time. You know, and I don't think that was a coincidence. I mean, it was also because and this has been remarked upon many times i mean the 90s changed so fast from early 90s to late 90s like i don't think um like the 2010s have as dramatic of a, of a break as the 90s do i mean there's certainly things that were popular early in the decade like brostep for instance that was a trendy thing and then that, that got absorbed into pop music and then pop music got much more mellow and sort of uh, you know, sort of like a Xanax type vibe of of pop music in like the late 2010s. But I don't know. I I just feel like going from grunge to new metal and pop, teen pop in the later latter half of the nineties, it's it's a pretty big change that happened. And it does feel like that like the latter half of the decade was a reaction to what was going on earlier in the decade. Where, like you were saying, people just sort of being like, okay, like, just get over, stop complaining about Ticketmaster, stop complaining about being a rock star, let's just have fun, you know, let's have bands that are like that. That's how things evolved, you know, by the end of the decade.
0: I mean, just to return to the voice thing, I mean, Edved, as Stone at least used to call him, you know, is a much better and more subtle singer. Than any of his imitators, you found that uh, that Bruce Springsteen quote where he talks about the sort of the the folkiness of it, and there is there is like this Americana thing buried deep into it, and he he is sort of a great and underrated singer because of all those uh, imitators. And so the Bruce thing is funny because as much as like, in the same way Ed could play the same game as other people there bruce was so uncool and i don't have to tell you in in uh, 92 90, 91 92 93 it was like his it was the lowest um period of of sort of bruce esteem in the culture um and ed definitely did not go around in interviews in the early days of Pearl Jam being like, I love Bruce Springsteen. He quietly, I know that he told Dave Marsh like backstage in like 92, I loved Bruce Springsteen, but he never talked about that shit until way later. Um, Right. Because because he too was just as concerned with being cool as everyone else. Let's like, let's face it.
4: Yeah. And it's funny because I think something similar happened to Bruce at that time that later happened to Pearl Jam, which is, just being so popular and so everywhere in a way that we're not used to a rock band being anymore. You know, like when you were talking earlier about just the ubiquity of Pearl jam in a way, it made me feel like, Oh, if you're going to compare them to someone now, I would almost compare them to like someone like Ed Sheeran in a way, like how people take shots at Ed Sheeran all the time, just because he's so insanely popular. And it's like, I can't get away from this guy. And it just, you know, it, it triggers people's fight or flight instinct you know and it just becomes the easy thing to attack for that reason and no other way would i compare pearl Jam to ed sheeran <laughs>
2: you know
4: they're totally different in every other way but i just think that thing of uh you know being so ubiquitous in a way that uh, again that i can't imagine any rock band even approaching now you know like they're kind of like one of the last rock bands that a, certainly traditional type rock bands that have experienced that t- level of like just media oversaturation.
0: I mean, on a life lessons level, I mean, I, I think the way they've survived and lived their lives is probably at least as impressive as, as anything musically. And I, I do think that whatever the flaws in the records over the years you know, every night they go out live to this day is a chance to sort of start again and and, uh, and make up for whatever mistakes and do your best again. And I think that that's, you know, for, for the aging among us is, is as inspiring as anything else.
4: Yeah, absolutely. And that's definitely one of the themes of my book, that, uh, you know, this is a story of survival, you know, that they were a band that I think could have very easily imploded, especially since so many of their peers imploded. The obvious fact about the big four Seattle bands—Pearl Jam, Nirvana, Alice in Chains, and Soundgarden—three of the lead singers of those bands have uh, you know, have died, and and two of them took their own life, and then Lane Staley essentially committed suicide over the course of many years. Uh, you know, suffering from just horrible drug addiction before. Passing away in 2002, and it just shows like, especially for this generation, it's it's so rare to go the distance, and they've had basically the same band intact now for 25 years. Matt Cameron coming on on board in 08, before going through like a Spinal Tap like revolving door of drummers before that. Uh, but yeah, it's just it's hard for any band to last for a long time, but I feel like especially bands of that era for whatever reason did not go the distance and and they found a way to do it. And I I think that's pretty incredible.
0: I mean, if you're a fan of the band, it could be, the last 20 years could be a little frustrating and it's sort of like slow motion. Like, is the band sort of a part-time project between, (laughs) between side projects? Are they just sort of touring once in a while and then occasionally releasing a record? But you know they're all they've all survived you know and they continue to all survive and i guess that's that's the higher higher project here
4: yeah you know it is a thing where i do feel like and this is maybe unspoken but it does feel like on on some level that the commitment in that band is to being a you know sort of working man's live on the road rock band you know that we almost like a cheap trick but like on a higher level than cheap trick you know like you go see cheap trick they might be playing an arena opening up for somebody or they might be playing a county fair in your town they're always great they're always reliable and there's sort of a inspiring sense of professionalism about that and in a way i feel like pearl jam approaches their career in the same way that we're going to play a unique show every night always going to be great always going to be powerful if you listen to recordings of like the last tour they sound great i mean they're they're still for my money they rank with you two and bruce springsteen as like the best arena bands certainly of modern times like if you're going to go see a band in arena and you want it to be a good show and you want it to feel you want that big room to feel small those are the bands you're going to go see i i like in my experience like they have done that as well as anyone in the last like 30 or 40 years.
0: Yeah, it's interesting. I've sort of taken a pass on most of the big concerts for a while, but I've gotten used to seeing clips of classic rock, actual classic rock bands, bands who who date back to the 60s and 70s and you know, hearing their concert, their post-covid concerts. And some of them are just not sounding very good. You have to use your imagination to fill in (laughs) where the voice used to be and stuff. Some of it's really faltering. These guys are getting in their 70s and 80s, and and it is faltering. But then I would hear clips from, and there's even a certain hard rock band from the 80s who have reunited and uh, become an unexpected sort of regularly touring juggernaut you start to get used to hearing these clips and everything doesn't sound that great and then you hear Pearl Jam <laughs> and they still sound like Pearl Jam and I'm like oh, oh holy shit I forgot like some of these band, somebody still sounds
4: good Eddie is like approaching 60 Eddie's I think he's pro- uh god damn I think it. he's 58 <laughs> I, I believe his birthday is 64 so my, my
0: brain will not uh will still not accept that
4: <laughs> I know that's insane
0: um, um it's Mick Jagger 20 years ago. How about that? You know. Yeah, <laughs> right, right. Like, Voodoo Lounge era. Right, Voodoo Lounge era where you weren't expecting them, you know, where where it was reasonable to expect them to sound youthful. Although, you know, to be fair, Mick is Mick still sounds fucking weirdly great. you is
2: strong. And you're so sweet. You make me hard. You make me real.
4: Like infinite. Yeah, I, I saw um, The Stones last year. Yeah. I
2: I
0: loved it. I had yeah. a great time. You know, Mick and Bruce have some kind of timeless thing to them, just insane genetics, but pretty much everyone else sounds like shit. <laughs> 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 um, but Eddie Vedder is, sounds great. You, you make a great point about just breathe. Yes, I understand that ever life must stand end, oh, hmm. Which is... The weird sort of anomalous, super mainstream Pearl Jam song of the 21st century. Like Miley Cyrus covered it. Yes, I
3: understand, every life must end on
0: You said, I think your sister wanted to use it at her wedding. She uh, did.
4: I mean, that song is interesting because initially it was just going to be a throwaway song similar to, you know, the the comparison I heard was actually, I think I'd make this comparison, that it's sort of like Her Majesty at the end of Abbey Road, you know, like just this quick little doodle that's just one verse and then it ends the record. And Brennan O'Brien, just as he did with Better Man, was like, no, we're going to turn this into a hit song because this is a beautiful song. And yeah, it, it's interesting because that song is more popular than like a lot of, the Pearl Jam Warhorses, you know, songs that you would expect to be, to be bigger. Like, I, I'm, I believe it has more streams than Daughter, for instance, and, uh, you know, some of the other big Pearl Jam ballads of the 90s. And it is because of people like my sister who got married to that song uh, in the mid-2010s. And, you know, my sister was born in 1990. I doubt that she knows any other Pearl Jam song to her that's not a Pearl Jam song that's just a song that she probably found on a playlist and thought was beautiful and wanted to get married to it and uh, you know I think that's kind of awesome actually sometimes if you have a song like that that can cross over and people who don't they don't care who you are they just like your song I think that says something about uh, that song I mean you don't want every song to be that but uh, you know it's kind of nice to have a song that people just want to put into their life like that. You know, it's it's kind of an amazing thing. It's it's a a
0: un, it's a undeniably beautiful song. It's a great song. I mean, when I first heard it, I was absolutely floored and moved. But it's right. the the and other it, thing, is, it, yeah. It, it kind
4: of said something about their career too at that point that they would be willing to put that on a record because I mean, the funny thing about Better Man to me is that Eddie thought that Here,
0: here say it again cuz you kind of said Butterman.
4: <laughs> oh, sorry. I mean, The funny thing to me about Better Man is that Eddie thought that having the first half of the song be quiet would make it less commercial, when in fact, I think it did the opposite because it turned it into a sing-along. You know, it's a classic construction of you start quiet and then you build to this great uh, emotional release. And the song, you know, you can hear early versions of it, and it doesn't have that. But when you take out the drums in the first half of the song, it becomes, it kind of changes the meaning of the song in a lot of ways, because it it's this dark song about a woman trapped in a bad relationship who decides that she's not going to leave. And it turns it into, musically, being more of an uplifting type song, uh, which you could say muddies the meaning of it, I think it adds another layer of meaning to it, in much the same way, like "American Girl" that I I compared to that in my book. "American Girl" is very similar to that, because that's a song people hear and they think it's a tribute to this American girl. But she's the girl in that song is also trapped, you know, and she's dreaming of going somewhere else. She's not going somewhere else, but she wants to go somewhere else, and I think the The uplift of the music, to me, suggests, this is me going full rock critic, that she will get there eventually. She's not in this song, but maybe tomorrow she'll get out of here.
0: You touch on this in the book. I think one of the things that's aged best about Pearl Jam and Nirvana and a few other bands at that time was the total rejection of the sexist, groupie stuff of not even just a prior generation of like hair metal and stuff that had just been happening and it was even happening concurrently in favor of very sympathetic songs, many of them written from the point of view of women or about women. And, you know, I remember, I mean, people don't remember, you know, how vocal Ed was in uh, pro-choice stuff, pro-choice events uh, in, you know, 92, 93. And those songs, I, th- I think, have aged very, very well. The ones, you know, written from, you know, and, and, and I I think we're ahead of their time and really bumped up against the return. I think the one thing that was, can't be sort of reevaluated in the late nineties stuff in, in, uh, in new metal and rap rock was the return of the sexism. Uh, and that, you know, and that gets into the whole Woodstock 99 stuff was such an unfortunate reaction to the sort of right thinking of of pearl Jam and nirvana which was at the time sort of and it was part of what people kind of like mocked and were annoyed by like oh who's this pc like preachy but again ahead of their time and and totally totally valid (laughs) i think
4: yeah yeah and i think it's i hate i kind of hate framing it this way because i don't want to make it sound like oh the only good thing about pearl jam having a, a progressive point of view is that it made teenage boys more empathetic but I do think that that was part of their legacy. And I could say that for me as a listener at the time, that to watch MTV Unplugged and see Eddie Vedder write pro-choice on his arm, you know, that's a pretty powerful thing. And it was not something that like Vince Neil was doing two years earlier, you know, during the Dr. Feelgood era, you know, as much as I like Motley Crue to some degree, you know, they you did not see uh, rock stars doing that kind of thing. And, you know, someone asked me this recently, I hadn't, this hadn't occurred to me when I was writing the book, but I think it's actually pretty spot on. Someone asked me like, is Pearl Jam like the least problematic major rock band of all time? And I was like, I don't know if that, I wouldn't know if I'd say the most, but certainly if you compare them to other bands at their, at their level, the number of skeletons in the closet that exists with Pearl Jam, it's like almost nothing. I really can't think of anything. I mean, you never know what might come out, but I mean, it seems like they have lived a pretty ethical life as a band uh, in all facets of, uh, of their career. So, you know, again, whether you're a fan of the band or not, I think that the way that they've comported themselves is pretty much beyond reproach. I mean, I they seem like they've done it the right way at the highest level of being a band. And uh, you know, there's not many bands you can say that of.
0: I wanted to hit one other note, which is you talked about how independent they became and, you know, just sort of the, the working man's live band thing. I mean, I having seen it myself, I've been to their headquarters in Seattle they really are in this weird way that people don't realize. They, they in the end, did become like a giant-sized Fugazi in some ways because they have their own merch operation. They're not really signed to a label. When they make deals with labels to release albums, it's just a distribution deal. They are the world's biggest independent. It's like the way that... George Lucas and Lucasfilm were once the world's biggest independent filmmakers, right. <laughs> sort of. And no one will give them credit because, like, that, that doesn't count. Like, it doesn't count that Return of the Jedi was the world's biggest. You know, or that Phantom Menace was the world's biggest independent film. Like, fuck you, don't even say that. But it's weirdly true. Um, they right. they broke away. They used the clout they got within the major label system and built everything they could themselves. They do have to tour within the Ticketmaster system and everything else, but otherwise, they're very self sufficient, very independent. And you know, all credit to them.
4: Yeah, yeah, and I, again, I, and I think that's part of their legacy, without question. That you know, there's a there's a phrase that I use in the book that was coined by Matt Cameron, where he described them as punk rock arena rock. The idea that they are an arena rock band, there's no question that they are, you know, closer to Aerosmith than they are to Fugazi in a musical sense, but philosophically and the way that they operate you're right. They are the closest thing to Fugazi that exists in that realm. And for all of the talk that people had, including Nirvana, which is a band I love, I love Nirvana, but you know, they were part of the corporate world. And unfortunately, because of circumstances that arose, Kurt Cobain didn't have the opportunity to establish his own path away from that. Uh, but Pearl Jam did. You know, they they did find a way to get out of the 90s, survive the 90s, and, and move forward and be this band that I, I think does belong in the conversation for, like, Greatest American Rock Bands. You know, if you look at their legacy, their history, what they've been able to do over the long haul when so many of their contemporaries did not make it for whatever reason, um, there's a lot... To be inspired by, in their story,
0: all that sort of like funkiness. A lot of the stuff on Ten Stone revealed that finally was like, yeah, that's the funk stuff. That's all James with a little bit of chili peppers. That's all it was. This is like James was the, James' addiction was a phenomenally hilariously huge influence on early Pearl Jam. Like it's easy to right. sort of forget that, but that's because you're sort of like, where's all this funk coming from? That completely disappeared later. You know, funk right. in quotes, but you know this that thing. All Jans. And then once you have McCready wailing on Wawa, like Navarro, you're like, holy shit, this really sounds like Go, really sounds like Jane's Addiction. Like a fuck of a lot. That,
4: yeah, Jane's Addiction yeah. is like one of those lost-to-time bands that um, I feel like like Nothing Shocking and Ritual deal Habitual are both so great. And they are like a bridge from like the 80s rock to 90s rock. And because they broke up, It disappeared a little bit and then Pearl Jam, like you say, with ten, it really did pick up that torch and run with it and show how huge it could be. If you just have a band that's a little more stable, you know, than than Jane's was.
0: But I was gonna say like stuff like indifference on that album, you know, cuts through the ages and still sounds amazing. And it is that that way of like, you know, it's it so even even, you know, the there's stuff that I think I could play for someone young and be like, you know, even on the albums without having them take them to a live show and be like, this is what people were responding to,
4: you know? Right. Yeah. And I think that's really true of like the later albums as well. I, sure. I would say it's more true of the later yes. records, which for me, you know, if you listen to, uh, know, lightning bolt or gigaton, you know like the rockers on those records I don't really respond to but like a song like Pendulum for instance from Lightning Bolt Can the you've been down so... I think is a really beautiful record that's a beautiful song and uh, or you know songs like The End from Backspacer
3: Slide home next to me I'm just a human
4: you know really songs like where they are acknowledging that they're a band and then in middle age now and they're confronting what it means to be at this moment in your life in the same way that like bruce springsteen does on his records um and that's always what i respond to more than like you know the songs that like sound pretty good live like a mind your manners or something like that works live, but like on a record I'm a little less interested in that kind of stuff. Um you know, I'm still waiting for Eddie Vedder to make another record in the style of Into the Wild.
3: A big, a big on the big
4: because that is such a uh that I think that's such a good like a great record. It's like my favorite record from like last 15 years of, of Pearl Jam's career. And it is them operating in a mode that feels a little more spontaneous. It's not they, it's Eddie Vedder. Uh, you know, operating in a more of like a spontaneous, scaled down mode where it feels like their recent records, they're deliberating so long on these albums and it, they feel when they come out like a little overworked sometimes. You know, I, I'd love for them just to bash out a record maybe a little quicker and have a little bit more of that kind of spark of inspiration to it you know still intact
0: i i do agree with you the one very recent pearl gem song that i responded to was dance of the clairvoyance which is
4: yes that's gen- a good song
0: genuinely surprising and it's sort of like talking heads slightly dancey thing and when i first heard that i said holy shit!" did they like really make a radically different record but no they didn't <laughs> they, yeah. as a whole they they, they didn't Doing something like that with no fear would also be really interesting, uh, you know? Yeah. But we'll see. They're, again, the good news is, you know, to uh, borrow a phrase, they're still alive, so they can do anything they want.
4: <laughs> exactly. And they're keeping an even flow in their career, <laughs> as it were.
0: Perhaps a bit too even, but that's okay. Steven, mm-hmm. thank you so much. The book is, and there's so much more in it, Long Road, Pearl Jam, and the Soundtrack of a Generation.
4: Thank you, Brian, for having me.
0: And that is our show for today. Rolling Stone Music Now will be back next week. Download us wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts. Maybe leave us five stars on Spotify and Apple Podcasts because that's always appreciated. But as always, thanks for listening. And we will see you next week.